Well, good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Today, we continue our study in the book of First Thessalonians, but today marks a major shift in Paul's writing. Because after three chapters dominated by the Apostle Paul's love, concern, and comfort for the Christians at Thessalonica, after three chapters filled with pleasantries, encouragements, and compliments for this church, after three chapters of Paul worshiping God, praying to God, and thanking God for this small, suffering group of believers, after three chapters of this, This morning, we finally get some good, old-fashioned challenge. In chapter 2, verse 12, we saw Paul exhort these Christians to, quote, walk in a manner worthy of God. And in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul hinted at the idea that while this church may have been doing a lot of things right, there was also something lacking in their faith. Well, this week... At the beginning of chapter 4, we start to get more details about what exactly Paul had in mind. So open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Feel free to use our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we go further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son Jesus. And thank you that we can come here on Sunday morning and we can be confident that you meet us here. Uh, You meet us in your word. You meet us through the words that we sing. You meet us in the prayers that we pray. You meet us in the act of taking communion, uh, remembering Christ's body and blood. Uh, Lord, thank you that you are faithful to be with us here. Uh, You're with us everywhere. You're with us at all times. Uh, But, Lord, there is a unique way in which we meet with you here on Sunday mornings. And I pray that we would recognize that and that we would enter into Sunday morning worship with a sense of awe and wonder and reverence and humility and joy as well. Uh, Thank you that we can come here as your children. Thank you that we can come here as brothers and sisters, uh, even brothers and sisters with people we might not know all that well. Uh, Thank you for the common bond that we have in Christ. Thank you for your spirit who indwells us. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word that we get to read. And thank you that as we start to come upon a time of year full of transitions, whether it's kids going back to school, whether it's vacations coming to an end, uh, whether it's looking forward to fall, uh, Lord, I pray that even as things change and as we leave one season and enter another, You remain the same, uh, and Sunday morning remains the same. So, Lord, I pray that this would be good for us, this time we have together, and it would be honoring to you what we say and do here today. We love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Well, starting in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Finally then, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord 
Jesus. There are a few things worth noticing in these short opening verses, things that we might be tempted to overlook. First, twice in these two verses, Paul specifically mentions the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse one, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. Verse two, Paul says they gave the Thessalonians instructions through the Lord Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but we evangelicals sometimes like to use words like father, Lord and Jesus a lot when we pray. It's kind of our prayer version of uh or um. We just say it over and over and over, almost throwing those words around like filler. Well, Paul's not just using the Lord Jesus as filler in these verses. He's reminding the Thessalonians of where he gets his authority from. Paul is speaking as a representative of Jesus himself, and thus he expects the Thessalonians to take his words seriously. He speaks in the Lord Jesus and through the Lord Jesus. But second, look at Paul's phrase in verse one, how you ought to walk and to please God. That should make us think back again to chapter two, verse 12, walk in a manner worthy of God. Maybe you've heard Christians ask a question like, so how's your walk? Paul uses that word walk to refer to the whole body of our lives. And what should our walk, what should our lives be centered around? Pleasing God. Of course, in a day and age that tells us our own pleasure, satisfaction and happiness are the most important things in the world, dedicating ourselves to God's pleasure above our own will make us stick out. But then finally, look at one more phrase Paul uses in verse 1. It's one that will come up again later in the sermon. That you do so more and more. As we've seen the past few weeks, this church in Thessalonica had a lot going for it. Their works of faith, Their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope had made them an outstanding model for all the other Christians and churches around them. But Paul challenges them to do so more and more. In so many ways, they already have walked in a manner worthy of God. They already have pleased God. But Paul encourages them to keep going. Do so more and more. So in just two verses, we've already got some good takeaways. Paul's words to the Thessalonians, the words we read this morning, are given in the name of the Lord Jesus with his authority. Thus, they back then and we today ought to take these words seriously. On top of that, our walk. Our lives are to be centered around pleasing God above ourselves. Now, it is ironic that we find that living for God's pleasure and not our own 
in the end, actually brings us a kind of pleasure and joy that living for ourselves never can. And finally, when Christians like us and churches like ours do something right, that's great. It should be celebrated. But the Bible challenges us to do so more and more. To keep going. Now that's plenty to think about on its own, but we've got more reading to do. And we see the real challenges that Paul issues begin in verses 3 through 8. So we pick up there. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So practically speaking, what might it look like to walk in a manner worthy of God? To please God. Well, first, it might help to know what God's will is to begin with. And verse 3 tells us it's our sanctification. Some form of the word sanctification is used three separate times in this passage, which gives you a pretty good clue about the main point of this sermon. Sanctification is both being set apart by God for holiness And also actually being made holy by God's power. In the first sense, we have already been sanctified. Every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and set apart for holiness. In the second sense, we are still being sanctified. By the Holy Spirit's power, we're learning to be holy as God is holy. Day by day. Slowly but surely. We often wonder, especially in those moments when we face major decisions or important crossroads, what God's will for our lives might be. And we look in tea leaves, and we look in the clouds, and we look for answers that might pop up on the radio to help us discover what God's will is. Well, in a very real way, Paul just came right out And told us what God's will is for our lives. Our sanctification. Our sanctification. So no matter which college we choose, which job offer we accept, who we marry or don't marry, where we live, whether we buy or rent, or when we retire, God's will for his people is our sanctification. Now, don't get me wrong. Those decisions are all important. But as long as your decisions don't get in the way of your sanctification, maybe you shouldn't stress out so much about whether or not you're following God's will. God's will for our lives is our sanctification. And that can happen in a lot of places. 
in a lot of ways. Second, Paul gives us a very specific on the ground example of one way our sanctification should play itself out. And that's when it comes to sex. We often hear people lament that our culture is way too sex obsessed. And I agree with that. But honestly, that's not anything all that new. The Thessalonians were dealing with the same things in their culture. And they faced many of the same temptations that we do. So Paul reminds them, and he reminds us, that there is a right way and a wrong way to use God's good gift of sex. We are to enjoy sex within the good parameters God has put down as creator of the world. And that's between a married man and woman. And walking in a manner worthy of God. Being sanctified in accordance with God's will means we think about, talk about, and practice sex on his terms. And third, building off that previous point, verses 6 through 8 tell us just how serious Paul is on this. If you look again at those verses, Paul solemnly warned the Thessalonians about this. He refers to the Lord, the Lord being Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, as an avenger in this matter. He also tells the Thessalonians, again speaking with the Lord Jesus's authority, that if you ignore these words, you're not just ignoring Paul. You're ignoring God. One commentator writes, The judgment Paul considers in these verses is not some mere disciplining procedure of genuine believers. Rather, those who do not break off from their former pagan ways of living should not be considered truly Christian and certainly should not be given assurance that their faith is genuine. Such people who confess to be Christians but live like Gentiles will be judged like unbelieving Gentiles. So in short, Paul does not view sexual immorality as something that Christians can just agree to disagree on. Something we can sweep under the rug in order to avoid confrontation. Or something that we can be silent or wishy-washy about so that people will still like us and our church will get bigger. This issue, as sensitive and complex and unpopular as it is, is a key part of God's will for our lives. Our sanctification. So what is God's will for our lives? Every single one of us, every believer... Our sanctification. What's one specific area of our lives where we should see that play out? Sex. And how important is this to Paul? And how important should it be to us? Extremely important. But Paul's final challenge of the morning comes in verses 9 through 12. So we read there. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. 
For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So lest we think Paul is only concerned about sex, he talks about other ways that our sanctification plays out as well. Verse 9, brotherly love. Paul said something similar last week in his prayer. In chapter 3, verse 12, he prayed that the Thessalonians would abound in love for one another and for all. And as we said back in chapter 1, love is not just a sentimental feeling. For Christians, it's a concrete practice, a habit, something we work at. And again, based on everything we've read in this letter, it appears the Thessalonians have this one down. But then we see that same phrase Paul used earlier. Do this more and more. Keep going. In verse 10, Paul tells the Thessalonians to live quiet, focused, and hard-working lives. Now, Paul's certainly not suggesting that in living a quiet life and minding our own business, that we ignore the Great Commission, that we not make an effort to go out and make disciples of all nations. Surely he's not saying that. But he is telling us to be faithful in the lives that God has given us even if they're unremarkable. He says something similar in 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. A quiet and faithful life in the little things can have a bigger impact than many of us realize. And as for Paul's words about work, they may give us a preview of what we'll discuss next week. How some believers in Thessalonica had mixed up views of Jesus' return. And that contributed to an attitude of laziness. But again, we'll save that for next week. But why does Paul want them to practice this brotherly love? Why does Paul care about their quiet, humble, and faithful lives? Verse 12 tells us it's in order that they might walk properly before outsiders. Before unbelievers. Our sanctification, or lack thereof, can testify to the legitimacy or the illegitimacy of the gospel we proclaim. We walk in a manner worthy of God before outsiders, so that in Jesus' words, they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. So that people who do not believe right now might come to believe because they see God's work in our lives. So bringing it all together this morning, 
In Jesus' name, we walk and live to please God, and we do so more and more every day. God's will for our lives is our sanctification, of which sex is a major part. And if we ignore Paul's words on this, we ignore God himself. But it's not just sex where we see our sanctification play out. It's in our love for each other. It's in our quiet but faithful everyday lives. It's in striving to walk properly before outsiders so that they might not stay outsiders. But before we close, a few quick comments. First, this is one of those sermons that's full of commands, isn't it? Do this, don't do that. That's because this text is full of commands. Paul is writing to Christians. He's giving instructions to Christians. And I'm preaching to a room that is full of mostly Christians. And whether we like it or not, the process of sanctification is learning to leave sin behind, don't do that, and pursue righteousness by the Spirit's power. Start doing that. And if a form of Christianity that actually demands something of you turns you off, then I honestly don't know what to tell you. That said, it is worth remembering what is often called the principle of the indicative and the imperative when it comes to the New Testament. For the non-grammar nerds among us, the indicative is statement of fact, and the imperative is command. So here's the indicative of the New Testament, the statement of fact. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are a saint. Period. You are justified by Jesus' death and resurrection. You have nothing to prove. But here's the imperative, the command of the New Testament. Now that you are a saint, now that you're justified by Christ, live like it. Are you saved by good works? No. But does the saved person produce good works? Yes. Now, for just one more moment, we need to think again about Paul's words concerning sex. Because for whatever reason, Paul thought that this was one area in which the Thessalonians were lacking in their faith. And if we look at the American church as a whole, we too are lacking in our faith when it comes to our views and our practices of sex. In a 2020 study done by Pew Research, 57% of American Christians surveyed said casual sex between two unmarried but committed adults is always or sometimes acceptable. 57%. When the question changed to two adults not in any kind of committed relationship... And even 50% of Christians still said sex was always or sometimes acceptable. 18% of Christians said open relationships with multiple sexual partners would always or sometimes be acceptable. And 19% of Christians said sex on a first date 
was always or sometimes acceptable. American Christians are mixed up in our views and our practices of sex. And those numbers barely begin to scratch the surface of the problem. And according to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, our understanding of sex looking identical to that of non-believers is not a sign of sanctification and is not God's will for our lives. Finally, more than once today, we saw Paul tell the Thessalonians to do something more and more. There were many things this church was doing well. But Paul did not allow them to rest on their laurels, to take the foot off the gas, or to ease up. They were to keep living lives pleasing to God. At times, we may be tempted to let up in our faith and our obedience. Whether it's because we're facing opposition that we used to not face. Maybe it's because we're aging and we feel like we've paid our dues and put in our time. Or maybe it's because we're just plain exhausted by the long race of following Jesus. But keep going. Do so more and more. You never retire from sanctification. And as Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Now look one more time at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul says there, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. That's sanctification. Know who you are. A saint by faith in Jesus Christ. And be who you are. A saint By faith in Jesus Christ. And sanctification will make us look different from the world around us. We see that in what's called a letter to Diognetus. This dates back to the first or second century. It was written by a man defending Christians from criticisms from non-believers. And this is what he says. For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language, nor the customs which which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life that is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, Proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. That's the author's way of saying, you know, at first glance, these Christians don't look all that different from the rest of us. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food and the rest of their ordinary conduct They display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. 
Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth is a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. In other words, these people don't sound any different than we do. Don't necessarily dress any different than we do. Eat all the same food that we do. And yet they are different. That's sanctification. That is God's will for our lives. May that will be worked out in us. And may we do so more and more until Christ returns. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And thank you for this portion of your word that was written to the Thessalonians, but is also written to us. I pray that we would take these words seriously. And I pray that you would sanctify us. We thank you that you have saved us from sin. You've saved us from death. You've saved us from judgment. But that's not the end of the story. And so, Lord, I pray that you would sanctify us. That you would continue to grow us to look more and more like you. That we would be holy as you are holy. That we would stick out from the world in obvious ways. And that people might see our good works and come to glorify you. I pray that we would be who you call us to be. That we would be who you've made us to be before sin entered into the picture. And I pray that we would be who we can be thanks to your spirit's power. And that's saints. So, Lord, again, sanctify us, change us, shape us, form us in your image. Not just so that we can become more like you, but so that we might walk properly before outsiders. Help us leave sin behind. Help us pursue holiness and righteousness. Help us do it all for your glory. And help us do it in gratitude for who you are and what you've done for us on the cross. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name.